Hello and welcome to all of you and a very warm welcome indeed to Joshua Four. and it's a great pleasure to have you here Josh, it really is. Uh, the plan for this event is uh, that Joshua will talk for about half an hour and then he'll take questions from me for about 15 minutes and then we'll throw the questions open to the audience and so we were supposed to finish at uh, half past seven but as we start a bit late we'll perhaps finish a little bit later but feel free to go if you must go at half past seven and after that Joshua will sign copies of his really splendid new book a bit of background about Joshua he studied evolutionary biology at Yale University and he's now a science journalist um, he's a very engaging and intriguing thinker as I'm sure that his talk will testify so let's go straight to that and hear no more from me. Joshua, I'd like to invite you to deliver your lecture, The End of Remembering. Okay. <clears throat> uh, well, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I have to tell you, I honestly forgot that my lecture was supposed to be called The End of Remembering. <laughs> Uh, and I've got a TV screen right here to just blow it up in my face and remind me. You're about to get the classic uh, used auto salesman bait and switch. Uh, but hopefully it'll touch on some of the themes that you may have come here uh, to hear about. I guess I want to begin by telling you that there is a very bizarre competition that's held every spring in New York City called the United States Memory Championship. And I had gone a few years back to cover this contest as a science journalist, expecting, I suppose, to find a bunch of freaks of nature. That these were going to be people with photographic memory, that these were going to be savants. I actually, I, I'm not entirely sure what I was expecting. I, I think I was expecting this was going to be the Super Bowl of savants. And what I discovered was something rather different, that the individuals who competed in this competition, who were able to memorize entire poems, um, hundreds of random numbers, the names of dozens and dozens, hundreds of strangers, entire shuffled packs of playing cards. They all professed to have average memories. And they claimed that they had learned, that they had trained themselves to perform these rather astounding uh, feats of memory. And I was like, whoa, no way. That's amazing. And I was standing outside the competition hall, which is held, um, I don't know if this will even be funny to people from London, but it's held in the Con Edison headquarters. It's a local power company in New York City. Um, and I guess it's not funny to you. <laughs> uh, and I was standing outside, and there was a guy called Ed Cook, who was British. And he was smoking a cigarette. The guy smokes way too many cigarettes. And he had come over as sort of a uh, warm-up, I guess, for that year's World Championship, which was going to be held in Oxford. He was there to hone his, uh, his skills before this big competition. And he said to me, you're a journalist. Do you know Britney Spears? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> Why? Well, because I, I really want to teach Britney Spears how to memorize a deck of playing cards on U.S. national television. It'll prove to the world that anyone can do this. <laughs> I was like, well, um, 
maybe you could teach me. I mean, you got to start somewhere. And I ended up spending the better part of the next year training my memory and also investigating it, trying to understand how it works, why it sometimes doesn't work, and what its potential might be. And it turns out, you know, once upon a time, the idea of having a cultivated, disciplined memory of laboriously furnishing one's mind was not nearly so alien as it would seem to us to be today. And part of the reason for that is that over the last 3,000 years, uh, maybe over the last 4,000 years, in fact, you could probably say this story goes back to the beginning of human culture, we've invented a set of technologies, a series of technologies, and I use technology in the broadest possible sense to encapsulate everything from the alphabet to the Blackberry to whatever thing Apple is going to invent next, which I don't even want to think about. Um, but I probably want, to, that have allowed us to essentially outsource the act of remembering this essential primal capacity. We have technologies that perform it for us. And, you know, 2,500 years ago, Socrates was up in arms about this new invention called writing. And he said, you know, once people start taking their memories out of their minds and putting them on papyrus, start externalizing their memories, they themselves are going to become like empty vessels. They're going to think that being smart, that knowledge, is simply having access to things that have been written down. And the culture is headed down this terrible, treacherous, slippery slope that's going to end no place good. Thank goodness somebody had the good sense to write this down. Otherwise, we would have no knowledge of it today. Thank you, Plato. Um, and I think from our vantage point today, most of us would say that Socrates was probably overstating the case a little bit. Uh, but I think we would also say there's something to what he was worried about. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the greatest geniuses were considered the people with the greatest memories. And the Latin root, inventio, is the source of two words in the English language. One is inventory, and the other is invention. And to a mind that was so invested in this idea of a trained memory, well, it made sense. One, one had to have an inventory of old ideas to think about if one was going to invent anything new, right? You had to have things knocking around in your skull if you were going to move through the world appreciating it, learning from it, having new ideas. I mean, what is creativity if not linking disparate ideas, if plucking from, from distant patches and bringing things together, making connections? And um, that idea today is, in a way, sort of foreign. And there's only really one place that I know of where there are people who are so deeply invested in this idea of a disciplined memory, and it's admittedly in an incredibly narrow and esoteric way, it's at this bizarre and singular memory contest. And I should mention there are actually memory championships held in a dozen countries around the world. There's one in England, uh, all over the world, culminates every summer in a world championship. Um, this year, I think it was in Shanghai. And I became a little bit obsessed 
with this entire idea of training one's memory. And <clears throat> turns out there are a set of techniques that were invented in ancient Greece that were once widely known and widely practiced. Uh, Cicero says, these techniques are so well known, I don't even need to waste any ink describing them because everybody knows about them. Well, I didn't know about them. This was news to me. And those techniques are all based around an idea known as elaborative encoding, which is figuring out ways to take things that are not memorable and make them memorable. Comes down, comes down to a, uh, what's actually known in psychology. There's a great paradox called the Baker-Baker paradox, which illustrates this really well. If you take two people and tell them to remember the same word, you tell one of them, I'm gonna, I want you to remember the word Baker, that there's a guy whose name is Baker, like capital B, Baker. And you tell another person, I want you to remember that there is a guy whose job is that he is a baker. And you come back to him a few days later, and you say, do you remember that word I was telling you about? Do you remember, do you remember what it was? The person who is told the guy's name is Baker, capital B, is less likely to remember the same word as the person who is told that there was a fellow whose profession was Baker. It's really strange. Same word, different amount of remembering. Why is that? Well, the name Baker doesn't mean anything. There's no associational hooks for us to latch onto it. It's effectively floating. Uh, it, it, there's nothing to tether it to all of our other memories. But the, the word baker, we know bakers. We know that bakers wear funny white hats. We know that they smell good when they come home from work. We know that their hands are covered in flour and they're probably really dry and cakey. And maybe we even actually know a baker. And those are all associations that we're able to make with that word baker. So one of the events in a memory contest involves uh, they give the competitors 100 headshots with first and last names under them, and they have to memorize as many of them as they can in 15 minutes. I think they now give them 200 because everybody was able to do 100. That was like no problem. And the trick in that, in that event, and it's the trick that works in everyday life in terms of remembering people's names, is to turn capital B bakers into lowercase b bakers to figure out how to transform information that has none of those associational hooks into information that is somehow meaningful or significant. This is the entire art of this sport of competitive memorizing. It's all about taking unmemorable information and figuring it out how in your mind's eye to make it as weird, as colorful, as strange, as beautiful, as ugly, as gory, as raunchy, as lewd, as stinky, as emotionally resonant as you possibly can, and to do it really, really quickly. And this entire sport, I should stop using air quotes. I, I really should. At this point, <laughs> I've written a book about it. I should, it is a sport, okay. Uh, and so is chess. Um, so is darts. <laughs> so is tic-tac-toe. Um, no, I'm just kidding. The, the, the entire, the sport is driven by a kind of arms race, where every year, somebody comes up with a new technique to remember more stuff more quickly, to essentially figure out how to make unmemorable information more memorable more quickly. It's almost always somebody who's unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> Often it's somebody who's unemployable. Uh, or it's a student who's got you know, a little bit too much time on their hands, an unstructured summer vacation. It's almost always, by the way, somebody in England. I don't know what that says. I think it might be... 
an effect of the welfare state. Uh, I have no idea. In America, we never get around to uh, inventing new techniques for remembering 50,000 digits of pi. I can't imagine why. Um, and uh, <coughs> all of these techniques, or I should say a number of them, go back to an invention that was supposedly made 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece by a poet called Simonides. Simonides, and this is the legend as passed down by Cicero, was attending a banquet. He stands up to deliver an ode, sits back down, walks out the door. The minute he crosses, crosses the threshold, the banquet hall collapses. The roof caves in, kills everybody inside. Doesn't actually just kill everybody, it mangles all the bodies beyond all recognition. So nobody can even say who was inside, who was sitting where. The bodies can't be properly buried. It's one tragedy compounding another. And Simonides closes his eyes and has, his, has this realization. <clears throat> In his mind's eye, he's able to see where each of the guests at the banquet had been sitting. And what he discovers is that, or what he discovered, is something that I think we all kind of intuitively know, which is that um, our spatial memories are actually pretty good. As bad as we are at remembering uh, phone numbers, as bad as we are at remembering people's names, we've got pretty awesome spatial memories. If you were to visit my house in New Haven, Connecticut, and if you were the kind of nosy person who, when I had my back turned, you, uh, you know, started opening up doors and looking in my medicine cabinet and um, you know, checking the vegetables in my refrigerator to see if they were rotten, you would walk out of my apartment after just a few minutes with memories of where my fridge was, where my sofa was, where my, uh, where my bathroom was. It's actually a lot of information if you think about it. We don't register it as a memory feat, but it kind of is. And what Simonides figured out was like, well, what if instead of remembering where, the so where Josh's sofa was, what if instead I was using, remembering images of things that I really actually care to remember? Like, I don't know, the words of one of my poems. And um, <clears throat> so that technique, which came to be known as the memory palace, forms the basis of, uh, of a lot of what happens in these memory competitions. So I had two secret weapons in my training to, uh, in my attempt to train my memory. One was that I had a coach who was from England. And I think I mentioned to you before that uh, the, a lot of this, this is taken a lot more seriously in England, actually in Europe, and particularly, by the way, in Germany. I don't know what it is. There is like uh, something about this sport that just like, I, I mean, I can't even describe it. It's like massaging some sort of a G-spot in the, deep in the heart of the Teutonic soul that just like, they love this. It just, it touches them. They have high school championships and regional championships and state championships and national championships. The German memory champion is like a celebrity. He's on TV. Women come up to him and ask him to sign their bosom. Uh, he's like, I'm the German memory champion. I don't carry around a pen. Um, anyways, so I had this Brit teaching me techniques that were used in Europe, which had not yet made their way across the Atlantic to the US. So when I showed up at the US Memory Championship, I haven't even gotten to that part of the story yet. I was training, it was basically like I, I, I was bringing a gun to a knife fight. Um, that was the kind of advantage it meant to have a British coach. 
The other advantage I had was that there is an entire field of psychology that is devoted to understanding how people get to be really good at what they do. And I dove into this literature and I talked to scientists uh, who study what's known as expertise, skill acquisition, to try and figure out if I'm going to try and train my memory, what is the most efficient, most effective way I can do this? And at one point I was trying to learn how to memorize a pack of playing cards, which is one of the events in the contest, to memorize a shuffled pack of playing cards. And I was just like, I wasn't getting any better at it. I, was, I just was not improving. I had hit a plateau. And I called up one of these researchers, a guy named Anders Eriksson, who teaches at Florida State University. And I said to him, dude, what is my problem? Why can't I get any better at this? And he said, I recommend you check out the literature on speed typing. This is how he answered a lot of my questions. He's very professorial. And um, I mean, it's interesting, speed typing, right? We all learn how to type. We, we go from sloppy single finger pecking to eventually kind of getting pretty proficient at it. And then we stop getting better. You think about it, it's weird, right? I spend the better part of my day typing. Why don't I keep getting better and better at it? Right? We've always been told practice makes perfect. So why don't we just keep getting better and better and better at typing? It's an interesting question. Well, in the 60s, a couple psychologists tried to break apart what's actually happening when you acquire a skill. And they broke it up into three stages. The first stage is what they call the cognitive phase, where you're intellectualizing a task, you're figuring it out, you're, you're paying attention, you're analyzing, you're getting feedback. Eventually, you move to what's known as the associative stage, where you sort of start to become fluent at the task and uh, get smooth at it. And then you reach what they call the autonomous stage. You basically turn on autopilot and you move this skill to the back of your mind and you don't pay it any conscious attention. You can actually see this in fMRIs, conscious parts of the brain involved in conscious reasoning, shut down, habit parts firing up. This is a good thing most of the time. Uh, being Running on autopilot helps us pay attention to the things that actually matter, which are the new things, the things that we haven't seen before. And we all reach this point in almost everything we do. You could call it the okay plateau, this point where we realize we're okay at how, we are, how we're doing at this skill and we're okay with putting it on autopilot. We, you know, we learn to drive when we're teenagers and then we never get appreciably better at it. Uh, my father, God bless him, uh, has been playing golf for 40 years and I don't think his handicap has fallen more than a point or two. Why? He reached an okay plateau. Psychologists used to think that these okay plateaus marked the upper bounds of innate ability, right? So uh, Francis Galton, better known as the founder of eugenics, said that you know, a person can only improve at a physical and mental activity, activity until he reaches a certain wall that he cannot by education or exertion overpass. Basically, the best we can do is the best we can do. Erickson, the psychologist I was telling you about, and, and, and his colleagues say that's not true. With the right kind of concerted effort, usually we can get past that point where we think we just can't get any better. And it really has to do with what we consider an acceptable level of performance. So what separates people who are experts, who are the top achievers in their field from the rest of us, is that they engage in a very focused kind of deliberate practice. Uh, Erickson's looked at 
experts in all sorts of fields. And what he's found is something that is actually rather common to all of them, which is that they tend to focus on three things. They are extraordinarily goal-oriented. They spend an enormous amount of time paying attention to their technique. And <clears throat> they get constant and immediate feedback on their performance. In other words, what they do is they force themselves to stay in that cognitive phase. They get off that, out of that autonomous phase and pay conscious attention to what they're doing. So amateur mus musicians, for example, love to play pieces. Love to play pieces, like my dad putting into a tin cup in, in, in the basement. The best musicians spend their time practicing the really, really hard parts, doing exercises. The best ice skaters in the world spend their time practicing the jumps that they fail. Amateur ice skaters spend their time doing the jumps that they land, which are more fun. Um, but if you want to get good, good at something, it's actually about how you spend your time, much more than the amount of time you spend. In fact, in field after field, they found that what correlates with high performance is not the amount of time you spent practicing, but very specifically what kind of practice you engage in. And the best way that they found to get off of this OK plateau is actually practice failing. And this is something that Benjamin Franklin apparently did himself. Uh, one, 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 way to do, one way to do this is to actually put yourself in the mind of somebody who's way better at this skill than you are and try and figure out how they were doing it. So Ben Franklin would read the essays of great thinkers, close the book, and then try and reconstruct the essay from his memory. And then compare how his line of thinking lined up with uh, these great thinkers and learn from it. The best chess players uh, the best correlate of, of what will make a good chess player is not how many games of chess one has played, but how many games of chess of experts one has spent studying trying to figure out why they made the moves that they moved, made. So if you want to stay out of autopilot, if you want to keep getting better, you've got to have that kind of focus. And with typing, it turns out this is actually really, really easy to do. It is really easy to become a faster typer. The key is you've got to watch yourself fail. So if you figure out what speed you're comfortable typing and then you force yourself to type 10 to 20% faster, over time, you figure out what is slowing you down, what is causing you cognitive hiccups, and people become faster typers. Uh, it's, it's actually just that simple. And that's what I did with my memory training. Uh, I figured out, this was Erickson's suggestion, I figured out how fast I could memorize playing cards, and I set a metronome. So that every time it clicked, I was gonna try and memorize a playing card. And, uh, and then I set it 20% faster, and I watched what happened, which was I, I wasn't able to do it. But I started paying attention to what was going wrong, and analyzing the data, and collecting feedback, and figuring out what was making me fail. So eventually I got off that OK plateau, and I ended up entering this contest that I had come and written about a year earlier. And the thing was, I won which really wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> and not only did I win, I actually set a new US record at the time by memorizing a deck of cards in a minute and 40 seconds, uh, which maybe sounds impressive, but is actually by the standards of the international memory community, and there is such a thing, totally unimpressive. Um, I have to explain that Americans on the competitive memory circuit are like Jamaican bobsledders <laughs> on the competitive bobsledding circuit. I, I like to think that we are the coolest people at any competition, but we are laughably behind the curve in terms of technique and training. And so 
I now found myself in the very weird position, having entered this whole thing sort of as a journalistic experiment, of being the official representative of the United States of America, <laughs> greatest superpower on planet Earth. Sorry. <laughs> but it's true. To the World Memory Championship. And uh, this was not a position I had expected to find myself in. And I took it very, very seriously. I brought, a, I brought along a couple props. Uh, <clears throat> I need to explain that in a memory contest, it is all about concentration. And so everybody who competes in this world wears earmuffs. So I had my wife paint up a pair of earmuffs, like Easy Rider style with the American flag, uh, so that everybody would know who the Yankee in the room was. And uh, usually, actually, people will wear earplugs underneath their earmuffs because there is no such thing as deaf enough in a memory contest. Um, and then, actually, I can't hear you. And then, I can't even hear myself. Uh, the best competitors in the world actually want to block out not only sound, but vision. Right? Any sort of extraneous stimuli is just like a recipe for forgetting. So it's almost exclusively the Germans. And I, I mean, I, I'm telling you, there's something about this that just like, they love it. They wear blinders. In fact, there's a German who competes wearing horse blinders, um, <laughs> like literally right off a, a horse from Central Park. And um, I did up uh, a pair of blinders myself. I, I, I trained wearing these. And the idea is, uh, you know, I can only think about what is exactly in front of me. And uh, that gave me an advantage. And so I went to the world championships, hoping to represent Uncle Sam. I had a Team USA t-shirt. And uh, I'm sorry to say I got absolutely destroyed. Gave the world an entirely unimpressive impression of American collective memory. Was utterly defeated by the Brits, by the Germans, by the Malaysians. But I'm very proud to say I beat the French guy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Maybe we'll turn it over to some questions. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. It was um, really an outstanding lecture. It's uh, thought-provoking and entertaining and informative, and really a delight. Thank you well, very thank much. I'm going to ask Josh some questions now, and then I'll turn it all over to you after that. Um, and I thought I'd jump in with a rather quirky angle um, on something called synesthesia, which probably many of you know about. I'll ask Josh to explain what it is, but there's a, an intriguing connection between the sorts of things that Josh has been talking about and this condition, synesthesia. And um, in his book, he actually likens mnemonics, this um, training of memory, to a kind of what he calls very nicely manufactured synesthesia. And it is known that people who have this condition also have very often extraordinarily good memories. And it, when he explains what the condition is, it seems weird that there should be any connection. So I thought we'd jump in with that. Stuff. Sure, yeah, you actually explained it very well. The, synesthesia is this bizarre condition, quite rare, uh, wherein the senses are somehow intertwined. So, so that, you know, when you hear a word, it immediately conjures up a color, or when you see a color, it is 
immediately associated in your mind with a sound. And there are actually a whole host of varieties of synesthesia. One thing that is demonstrably true is that synesthetes tend to have better memories, which is interesting, uh, because you say what's going on in these contests is a kind of artificial synesthesia. What a competitive mental athlete is doing is trying to bring all of that sensory experience to bear on whatever boring thing they're trying to memorize. They're trying to, you know, you're, if it's, you're talking about a number, they're trying to smell the number and hear the number and see it and imagine it and colorfully and have emotional reactions to it, which is what synesthetes can do in a way automatically. And that's what you're learning how to do in one of these contests. Mm. Right, thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you now about uh, sex differences in these championships. Um, Most of them have very little. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was interesting. I thought, I thought the German was going to answer, not that I haven't got a pen, but I'm not interested in boobs, I thought he was right. going to say. Um, right. <laughs> the, I'm laughing knowingly. You guys are all laughing unknowingly. <laughs> right. Um, I just putting it putting it shortly, but I'll explain mm -hmm. longly after that. Um, shortly, why will there ever be a female world memory champion? And there's a sense in which I suspect not. There's a very obvious sense in which not, because as we know, there's a huge difference between males and females in in who wants to be. Um, the first and the biggest and the best and who goes in for championships and who cares about all of spending their time doing this sort of thing anyway. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, and um, there's that really, really competitive edge that males have that females don't on average have and showing off and single-mindedness, huge single-mindedness, nerdiness if we dare call it that. But I, I'm leaving all that aside, leaving all that aside and looking at the content of what they're doing and I was very struck in the book that um, you talk about how a lot of the mnemonics, these methods for mem memorizing, um, depend a lot on spatial abilities. And the largest and most robust cognitive dif difference between males and females is in, spatial, in the spatial area. And in, and in particular, you talked about walking through the rooms and the memory palace, and that seems to be very important. And that seems to be the kind of area that would favor males. And so I just wondered if anything is known about um, the difference between males and females, how they, go, how they treat such contests or how they treat such memory feats, and uh, whether there's been any study of whether it, it actually maps onto this sort of difference. Well, when women get lost in their memory palaces, they ask for directions, and men just keep on circling around and around and around. <laughs> I actually take issue with several of the things that you said. I, I, first of all, the U.S. memory champion for many years was a woman. And every year, there is a woman who finishes in the top five of the world memory championship. And if anything, I would say my intuition, and I'm actually probably a bit more averse to making these kinds of broad generalizations. Yes. Uh, yes is that the women who compete in these sports, in this sport, <clears throat> tend to be the more natural talents. And they come in and seemingly with less practice and less of this arduous training, do very, very well. The problem with the women, if I may say so, and maybe this is not a problem, 
is that they go and do something sensible with their lives and go on to like medical school next year or law school and the men come back year after year after year after year. So perhaps that does perhaps that does point to some sort of a gender difference, but I'm 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 more loath than you are to to make those kinds of generalizations. I'm I'm hesitating now then about whether I should press the next Go for it. One. Let's hear it. You sure? Yes. Okay. It's in your book. Well, I, you're, uh, is, is this going to involve more calling me a nerd or a geek no, or something? No, I, I promise. I promise. I've okay. stopped that. All right. <laughs> um, and the other, and, and then I'll stop talking about sex differences. Um, but the the other notable difference between men and women is that, on average, men have a greater women have a greater interest in people, and men have a greater interest in things. Now, this is very on average and so on, but it does show up in the cumulative statistics, and. Um, there was quite an astonishing quote in your book, I mean astonishingly apt, um, of somebody who has what Simon Baron Cohen, as some of you might know, has called the extreme male brain. And um, he talks like this about um, faces. And you say in the book, um, every mental athlete has a weakness, and Ben's is names and faces. Um, his scores are near, nearly always near the bottom of the pack. And Ben says, I don't tend to look at people's faces when I talk to them. In fact, I have no idea what lots of people I know really look like. To get round this problem, he's been developing a new system for an event that would assign numerical codes to eye color, skin color, hair color, hair length, nose, and mouth shape. He figures that if people's faces could only be turned into a string of digits, they'd be a cinch to remember. And I just thought that was... A, a real vignette of the extreme male brain, and I just wondered. Um, <laughs> I don't I know that wondered, I would. Well, I was going to say whether yeah. females actually have an advantage on the faces um, part, I, I, and I, I noticed the woman won on that one. Yeah, but that's that's uh, point. Only one point. I, I think I would be I would be no more I would be as reluctant to draw any conclusions about the uh, the male gender from from Ben Pridmore as I would. Be to, uh, to to generate any any conclusions about the female ge uh, gender from Lady Gaga. I think this is a an extraordinary extraordinary individual who I suspect actually may very well have prosopagnosia, which is a condition where you actually oh, cannot recognize right. faces. Right. I didn't want to yes. say that in the book because I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose no. him. But uh, uh, huge handicap for him. That then. would be a, a, yes. that is like I mean that he does this well in these contexts would be is remarkable. Hmm. Of sex differences okay. then, I think, and <laughs> we'll keep well away from that. Um, I just wondered why spatial memory is so central to mnemonics, um, because you very sensibly say we use spatial memory because it's what natural selection gave us as a, as a way of remembering things, but it's, it's a bit odd why it was so useful to remember things spatially. If you think of, a, say, a dog's memory championship, it would be based on dogs practicing smells and because that tells them about friends and enemies and territory and so on and so on. And for I bats, love this. I can picture they would line up 12 people and they would just go up and, and, and sniff each one of their crotches and have to <laughs> re remember who was who. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what they would do. So you could see for dogs why it would all be based on smell and similarly for bats why it would all be based on echolocation or whatever. It's not obvious to me why it's... No, bats... So first, of all, first of all, those... Uh, dogs have great spatial memory, uh, and you know you think of uh, there there are, are species of jay of uh, birds yes. that can 
remember exactly where they've put, you know, 3,000 acorns yes. exactly to the place. Yes. Um, it makes, I think, I mean, if, if you want to go the pop evolutionary psychology sort of explanation, is it makes sense that our ancestors made their living as hunter-gatherers. What mattered to them was remembering where resources were, where the root home, mm -hmm. where the saber-toothed tiger was hanging out, mm -hmm. and you know, um, and which mushrooms were edible and which were not. I guess that's actually still relevant. But what they didn't need to know uh, was, you know, phone numbers. Uh, they didn't need to know the names of a dozen people at a cocktail party because they lived largely in small, stable groups. And so it makes sense that we might be wired to remember better in certain respects than in others. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense, yes. I, I wasn't maligning dogs and jays, by the way. I know that they also um, do that. Um, it would be really interesting to do some memory work on, on different species and comparing what's really salient for them, but that's another whole question. Um, you mention a rather poignant point in the book, which is um, you ask, about this question of the fact that we used to use almost entirely internal memory and now we've externalized huge, vast areas of memory and our whole culture is a great palace to externalized memory. And you say, uh, what implications for ourselves and for society does this have? You say what we've gained is indisputable, but what have we traded away? Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd just like you to well, enlarge on I, I think what you think. We've changed in a number of ways. First of all, it's hard to measure ourselves cognitively against people who lived a thousand years ago, uh, in part because they didn't have uh, brain science back then. But we, we do know from how they just talked about themselves, we can discern some things about their behavior and how they thought. And one thing that's clearly changed is the very notion of what it means to be erudite, right? Uh, when when if you were a medieval scholar and you were looking at a text, chances are there were probably a couple dozen copies of that text in existence anywhere. They were probably chained to a lectern in a library somewhere. And you can imagine there was a great premium placed on remembering what you read. There's great value on internalizing memories. Well. Gutenberg came along and the number of books in the world exploded. Suddenly it was possible to have books at home on a bookshelf. Uh, there were a whole host of other technologies like the index which was invented, uh, page numbers, tables of contents, things that made it possible to access information without having it totally internalize it. And that changed the very notion of what it means to be erudite. It was no longer having all this information stored internally, but knowing how to navigate the labyrinthine world of external memory. And you might argue that the notion of erudition is changing again now. Now we don't even need to know how to navigate the labyrinthine world of external memory. All we need to know is the right set of search terms. And it's changing again what it means to be smart. You can, uh, I mean, think about what is possible for a scholar today versus 300 years ago versus 1,000 years ago. I mean, obviously, scholarship means something different, but that's one way it's changed us. I think another way in which we've certainly changed is that we just don't trust our memories. Um, we see every little failing every time we misplace the key. It's like evidence that we're losing it altogether. Our marbles are going. 
we've got early stage Alzheimer's. We're, and that's a matter of simple faith in our memories. And I mean, if there's one thing that I discovered through this process of training my memory, it's that there's an incredible amount of potential in there that we just don't give our memories credit for. And one of the things I've tried to do is learn how to trust the fact that I am capable of remembering. But you were remembering um, strings of digits and um, cards, card arrays, and so on. Um, could those techniques be applied to real knowledge? I wouldn't call that real knowledge. And mm. I think, well, well, and, and, <clears throat> right. al and also, um, even remembering, uh, remembering other things like phone numbers and shopping lists, I think that's a sort of boring stuff. It's great to have it externalized. I, I, agree, with you I agree with you 100%. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. So, so, is, it, so <clears throat> is that really knowledge? If you're well, so there are, a couple, there are a couple answers to that question. The first is, um, the, the principle, okay, so these, when we talk about, when I was talking about these techniques, it's a very, very narrow way of talking about memory. The principles behind why these techniques work uh, are broadly applicable and important. The first is simply the importance of paying attention. Samuel Johnson said the art of memory is the art of paying attention. And, you know, when you throw your car keys down and you don't remember where you put them, it's usually because you weren't paying attention, and that's fine. Typically, you find your car keys eventually. But you can be the kind of person who moves through life treating everything like you've just thrown down your car keys. And that's the kind of person you don't want to be. And that's something that is actually you can willfully have in the front of your mind. I'm going to be the kind of person who remembers to remember. I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to pay attention. I am going to take notice. The second thing is to say remembering is a function of understanding of structuring knowledge, of, um, of figuring out what's significant, interesting, potentially colorful in a piece of information and experience, whatever it is that we want to remember. And that's true knowledge, right? I want to actually just give a quick side anecdote about that. Um, in chess, at a certain point in every chess player's development, it becomes absolutely trivial to remember a chessboard. Uh, at a certain point, chess players can play dozens of games in their mind without having anything in front of them. It's just easy. You can show them a chessboard, they can look at it for a second and memorize it. Now here's what's really interesting. If you show a chessboard to a chess grandmaster where the pieces have been arranged randomly, as in they could not have arrived that way through a game, their memory for that chessboard is not much better than average. It's fascinating. Same chess pieces, same chessboard. Why? Because that chessboard has no meaning for them. They have no way of understanding it in the light of all the chess games they've played before. They have no way of structuring that information. That's noise. And that's the difference between noise and what you might call knowledge. I like that answer. It's okay. very good. I think it's, um, I've monopolized you and, and abused my place here. I'm really sorry about uh, calling you a nerd. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Girls have been uh, calling me nerds for a long time. It <laughs> <laughs> never hurt me. It was all right. <laughs> I'm going to turn to the, the questions to the audience now. Um, there are microphones, and so please wait till the mic comes. And unlike me, try and keep your questions short and clear. Uh, let's start at the front here. 
thank you for an excellent talk. Um, I had two questions, if I may. The first question was, um, I'm assuming you did this a few years ago, the actual memory championship. Um, has that stayed with you now? So do you, is your memory significantly improved since then? And what practical benefits have you received from that? And secondly, there's been a lot of talk about Google making us stupid, for example. And just wanted to talk about what the implications are for having a good memory and our ability to concentrate for long periods of time. Okay, a couple questions there. I'll answer the, the last question first, which is about concentration. I actually think that that is probably one of the ways in which we are cognitively different from our ancestors, our simple inability to concentrate. Part of the reason we find these feats of memory so astounding is because they're actually feats of concentration. And they're almost unfathomable feats of concentration. But once upon a time, people had time to concentrate. Um, to go back to your first question, which was about, uh, first of all, what, what's my memory like today? I need to answer that by first explaining something that um, is laid out in the earliest classical Latin memory treatises, which is a distinction between natural memory and artificial memory. Natural memory is the hardware you're born with, what we think of as memory. Artificial memory is what you're able to do with that natural memory through technique and training. And that's what I improved through the course of this training that I underwent. So there was a period when I was a well-oiled mnemonic machine, a veritable mental Lou Ferrigno. Uh, I am sorry to say I'm having hung up my cleats after competed in, competing in this contest as a kind of journalistic experiment. I've, my abilities have um, diminished somewhat. I was actually, I did a reading the other day with the current US memory champion who is, uh, he won the contest about two weeks ago. He's roughly nine feet tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. I, I don't like standing next to him because there's nobody who's ever made me look worse in my life than this guy. Um, and <clears throat> I had him call out numbers. People in the audience call out numbers. Just one, but you know, nine, four, seven, four. And he recalled them. And I was trying to keep him honest because I knew nobody else in the audience was going to, he could have been, he could have been pulling him out of his tush. Nobody was going to, you know, know. And so I was trying to, to, to do the same thing. And I realized we got to like the, the 13th number. And I was like, damn. I'm falling behind. I can't keep up with this guy. And that's because I'm like a little bit out of shape. So in terms of everyday life, it's a little bit like having a Ferrari in the garage. It's nice to whip it out sometimes, rev the engine, but there aren't that many opportunities mm. to, to use it in everyday life. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, both of you. Um, brilliant. I just loved the way you talked about what you talked about as an NLP person. I kept hearing all these things coming up, like paying attention and goals and focus. And um, Helena, you've stolen my thunder. I'm the one who comes in on gender, usually. And I want to come in completely sideways. Elaine Grimaud is an amazing pianist and a synesthete. And it seems to me that when she is playing, she's totally focused. There must be incredible memory going on in terms of where the notes are, but also the whole process of going through it. And I think she's probably almost in another state because it seems to me that the things that we used to remember, like when you learn, when you learn a poem, to me, that's when I really know and understand the poet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm using that as an analogy. So I don't think we're losing memories. I think because we need to remember where the stuff is. 
But in the way in which you talked about concentration, it seems to me that a really great musician, I'm going to say, because that's the thing that I really care about, is, is doing something else. And she's a woman. So do you, does this make any sense? Does this connect in any way with what you're saying? Because I could go off in so many directions with it. Well, I think um, one thing that is interesting that uh, I'm thinking about and listening to what you're saying is the fact that you mentioned that she has an extraordinary memory. Um, and one thing that is true is great musicians have an extraordinary memory for music. And great soccer players, this is actually <laughs> true, great soccer players can be shown a, uh, a, a, a TV screen with a, a soccer game on it briefly and then have it taken away and can reconstruct uh, where, the, where everybody was, the dynamics of the game uh, better than you know your uh, average peewee leaguer. I don't even know if you guys have peewee league soccer in England. So many things don't translate. Um, the same is true of experts in just about any field that you can imagine. There's something about achieving expertise in a field that comes along with a terrific memory for the details of that field. There is something that every single person in this room has a great memory for. Whether it's cricket or baseball or cooking or whatever it is when we uh, w the essence of achieving expertise is figuring out how to interpret information structure it understand how it fits together and that's the same thing that makes stuff memorable and it's the reason that experts have great memories so thank you um, I think we'll take two at the back there together and, um, Does that mean they have to ask at the same time? Um, absolutely simultaneous, otherwise they'd cut. Yes, that, that person there, and then, and then pass it on to the end of the row, so we'll take the two. Okay, uh, thanks for the talk. Um, you talked about invention coming from an inventory of memories. So the question is, um, how's your long-term memory, and whether your memory training techniques have given you better long-term memory so that maybe you are more innovative or more inventive in your writing. Uh, second one is about mindfulness and trying to make an effort to remember where I put my keys. Do you ever get, does that ever get fatigued if I'm trying to be mindful about where I put my keys every day and after a while it is equally ineffectual? So these are my two questions, thanks. Okay, the first question was asking, am I a better writer because of this memory training? The answer I am almost certain is no. Uh, but I can't prove it, uh, nor could I prove the opposite. The well, like I said, my natural memory. Uh, okay, so now I need to tell a story that's going to make me look bad. Uh, two days after winning the United States Memory Championship, I went out for a celebratory dinner with a couple of friends, um, you know, to sh show off my awesome trophy. Uh, and I was walking in the door to my house. And I realized as I was walking in the door that, oh crap, I had driven to dinner and taken the subway home. <laughs> it's not that I had forgotten where I put my car. I had forgotten that I had a car. <laughs> so that was like a real bring him back down to earth moment. Um, and it's true, I, my, that distinction between natural and artificial memory, my natural memory, I'm sorry to say, is, um, is probably still 
the same lousy natural memory. In fact, a few years back, there's a study in Nature, uh, the journal Nature, where they looked at the, mem the, the brains of eight memory champions, people who compete in this world at the highest level, to see was there anything structurally, anatomically different about these people. The answer was no. Their brains looked indistinguishable from control subjects. How did they do on cognitive tests? No better than average, or barely better than average. These were not geniuses. The only thing that was different and unique about these people's brains was that when they put them in fMRI scanners and asked them to memorize, the regions of the brain that were lighting up were different. They were engaging parts of the brain that are involved in spatial memory. Well, that's kind of weird, but of course it makes total sense when you hear that what they're doing is they're wandering around in their mind's eye in these memory palaces. Um, so I'm sorry to say I'm still forgetful. <laughs> okay. Um, somebody at the end, yes. I was just wondering, it's really interesting that you've learned all these techniques, but I was wondering if you're going to like, continue on with your research or whatever it's called that you're doing and um, <laughs> like, look at other communities rather than just like Western people and how we remember things living in this ridiculously fake society that we live in and whether Aboriginal communities around the world use different techniques and whether there's things that we can learn from them because I know communities that like, have held on to their information and maps in their minds yes. um, for thousands and thousands of generations and there's obviously a lot of stuff that we could learn from them. It, it, great question. There, it is fascinating to look at how different cultures have preserved memory, right? something that is so essential to every culture and that every culture is approached in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, and it's something I talk about in the book a bit. One thing that I, just because you bring up Aborigines, I want to bring up is that there, this technique of the memory palace, which sounds so, um, it's, it, it's so exact, it's so, it feels so European, it feels so German. Uh, was independently invented in some form or another by several cultures. Uh, Native Americans in the, in the American Southwest would tie their cultural narratives, their epics, their histories to the landscape in such a way that they would tell their stories by navigating across the landscape. So part of the story was tied to this mountain and part of it was tied to that hillock and then part of it was tied to that stream and they would narrate their stories across the landscape. So one of the effects of the, when, when, when the US government came and took their land was not just that they had lost their land, but they had lost their memories as well, which is incredibly poignant. Um, one question here, and then this one at the back. Could we, that, that question there. And then there, there were two people sitting at the back. Um, it was this, this person on, on my left after that. Hi, uh, thank you. I've got two questions for you. The first one is regarding the memory championships. Uh, what are the reasons behind the qualifying rounds in the USA memory championships? Because unlike other national memory championships, uh, they don't have qualifying rounds. So is there any plans for the US to conform to the standards set by the World Memory Council? <laughs> That's my first question. 
second question is regarding the records set during the memory championships. Um, in this big cards event, only about a few years ago, 30 seconds was the holy grail in this event. Uh, right now, the current world record holder, Simon Reinhardt from Germany, does it from 20 on 21.9 seconds. So my question is, how fast do you think we can get in this event, and what factors do you think would limit us uh, from achieving a faster time to memorize a shuffled deck? Thank you. <laughs> okay, now I can admit that I have a plant in the audience, this guy. Um, <laughs> The first question, Amer the American Memory Championship is structured a little bit differently than other international memory contests. Can you guess why? It's because the American Memory Championship is on TV. And uh, it turns out a bunch of people sitting around staring at pieces of paper, occasionally massaging their temples, is not that dramatic. And so somebody had the brilliant idea of introducing some of the kind of kabuki theater of the spelling bee, which actually, do you guys do spelling bees in England? Not as much. No, right, because you have the U's and the O's and it would get confusing. Um, <laughs> it's a big deal in America, and like, it's on ESPN. Do you have ESPN here? <laughs> I, somebody needs to brief me before I... Uh, ESPN is like the, the big sports channel, right? And they show the spelling bee on, anyways. So they, they, they wanted to do this with the memory championship, so they changed the format around to make it television friendly. And one of the events that they now introduced, which I love, I think it's my favorite event in the memory contest, is they bring five strangers up on stage and they just reel off all of this biographical information. My name is such and such, my favorite foods are pizza, spaghetti, and clams, I drive this kind of a BMW, here are the names of my pets, this is my phone number, here's my address. This is my, these are my hobbies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, five people, and you have to remember as much of that as possible. And that's about as true to life as any memory test that you could get in one of these contests is, uh, and it happens to work nicely on TV. Um, in terms of your second question, yeah, so every year, new records are set in this sport. Just as in every year, actually, in every single sport, new records are set. Uh, to the extent that there are communal collective okay plateaus out there that we as humanity are approaching. There is not one, there is not one that we have not continually broken, which I think is actually fascinating and something kind of profound worth dwelling on. There is not a sport in which records aren't re regularly broken. Um, in memory, every year it gets better and better and better and better and it's because people are inventing new techniques and figuring out new ways to use those techniques better. Right now, the record's 21.9 seconds to memorize a deck of playing cards, which is very nearly more impressive as a feat of manual dexterity than it is as a feat of mental dexterity. How fast do I think they'll get? I, I don't know, but I know it'll get faster and faster and faster. Hmm. Um, the next one. Yeah. Um, you talked about synesthesia and how when people remember they you know, associate smells with, you know, the different parts of their senses. So I was wondering if, if there's any kind of um, research being done into, you know, people who perhaps have more experiences than others. For example, have traveled more or um, watched more films or had more visual, you know, smelt more things, I don't know. Um, if that helps with memory, if they're better at remembering. That's fascinating. Um... My intuition is that that would make you better in this, in this sport. 
my intuition is also that that would make you better uh, in terms of remembering all sorts of things. That the essence of remembering is having other facts, other experiences to fasten facts to, to fasten the, those experiences to. In fact, you know, William James, uh, writing in 1890, talked about how our experience of memory shapes our experience of the passage of time. And he said, you know, look, when you're young, you're having these new experiences every day, everything is new, and life seems to move slowly when you're young. And then as you get older, life becomes more routine, and, you know, we travel less, we meet new people less often, we have fewer new things that are impressing themselves upon our memories. And one of the effects is that life seems to speed up. The reason James was saying that life gets faster as we get older is that life gets less memorable as we get older. And there is a lesson I think we can take from that, which is just the importance of having these kinds of anchoring experiences that you're talking about, travel, meeting new people, doing new things, having a weird, unusual life that's filled with novelty, because those kinds of experiences anchor our memories they are chronological landmarks that we help use to help structure our experience of time. They make life richer, obviously. So I think that's one thing that we should all aspire to. One more question. Yes, it was you originally, I, I said. Hi, thanks so much for your talk. I, I don't think you're a nerd at all. I think you look beautiful in your blinders. Thank you um, very much. <laughs> You've talked so much about remembering, and you're so poetic. I wondered, have you had any deep thoughts on forgetting? <clears throat> um, have I had any deep thoughts on forgetting? <sighs> well, I wrote about it a bunch in my book. Um, yeah, I think you know, there's a great Borges story called Funus the Memorius, and it's about a character who simply remembers too much. Turns out, Though Funus was not based on this guy, there's a famous character in the psychological literature called S, uh, who was studied in the 1930s, actually for several decades, by a Russian researcher named A.R. Loria. Loria apparently didn't know Borges. Borges didn't know Loria. It's a coincidence that he wrote a fictional story about a guy who actually existed in real life. He remembered simply too much. He was like a vacuum cleaner. And he couldn't make any distinction between the things that were worth remembering and the things that weren't worth remembering. He was effectively dysfunctional, this guy S. And Borges concludes in his story about a similarly dysfunctional character, a fictional character, that the essence of thinking is not remembering, it's forgetting. That's what makes us human, forgetting. That's a, a very, very nice place to end. Um, Joshua, thank you very much again for your lecture and also for dealing so very constructively and interestingly with all the questions of whatever type. Um, that was very good of you. And thank you to everyone in the audience for, being so, for coming this evening and really being so very engaged. It was just delightful. I think uh, we were enjoying ourselves and, and seeing that you were. Uh, one thing I'd like to tell you is that Joshua's book, which is called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein, The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. It'll be on sale right now outside the lecture theatre, and he's about to go there to make himself available for signing it. And I've read the book, and it's a very enlightening 
and exhilarating and amusing journey um, through the history and the modern science of memory and its uses and abuses. It's really very, very highly readable. And you'll never forget where you've left it because you won't want to put it down. <laughs> Thank you and goodbye to everyone. Okay, yeah? Right. I can leave this stuff here off the backboard.